0: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This season of Strong Opinions, Loosely Held, is brought to you by Lean Cuisine. I've got a lot of opinions, and here's one. Sesame is everything especially the sesame chicken from Lean Cuisine's Marketplace line, which is made with the kind of ingredients that I like to keep in my own kitchen. Natural chicken, no artificial colors, flavors, or preservatives. Visit leancuisine.com refinery29 for a coupon code and feed your phenomenal with Lean Cuisine. From Refinery29, this is Strong Opinions, Loosely Held. I'm Elisa Kreisinger.
1: So we've got the open concept. Got that open floor plan. That
0: big open field. Nice open living space. Hardwood floors are nice.
1: Original hardwood floors. Hardwood
0: floors. I do
1: love the hardwood floors.
0: HGTV has the ability to do what our president can't, bridge a divided country. If you're looking to find some common ground between millennials, feminists, queers, conservatives, and Christians, look no further than HGTV. The channel possesses the odd quality of uniting disparate segments of the population that usually wouldn't share much in common. Short for home and garden television, HGTV took over CNN as the third most-watched cable TV channel in the U.S. in 2016. It fell behind only Fox News and ESPN. HGTV reaches 82% of homes with TVs and it has one of the most affluent audiences in extended cable, and that includes celebrities. Ryan Reynolds, William Shatner, Khloe Kardashian, and Jewel all love to watch and tweet about HGTV. Taylor Swift loves Fixer Upper. Hillary Clinton likes Love It or List It and Beachfront Bargain Hunt. Steve Forbes, the CEO of Forbes, calls Fixer Upper, quote, a family fave. And Seth Rogen might have watched HGTV for, quote, 179 hours straight. I love HGTV. I love Chip and Joanna Gaines. I love House Hunters Renovations. I love watching people make the biggest purchase of their life. I love HGTV so much that I actually went into the home buying process this spring drinking that HGTV Kool-Aid. I was focused on hardwood floors, an open floor plan, and of course, enough room to entertain. I need a lot of room to entertain, so I want to make sure that I have a dining space, a place for us to. It was to play going, going games. through the home buying experience that I realized that it's way more political and divisive than HGTV makes it seem. It turns out that glorifying home ownership also plays a role in actually dividing the country. Here's how HGTV explains America.
1: So if you look back to the founding of the republic, you have a lot of voting rights conditioned on property ownership. So, only people that own property were allowed to vote. So in some ways, this idea of ownership and property ownership dates back to the the very beginning of the United States. I'm Brian McCabe. I'm an associate professor of sociology at Georgetown University. Uh, My book is called No Place Like Home.
0: Brian's book changed how I think about the politics of home ownership.
1: We weren't always a nation of homeowners. So if you look at the numbers today, probably about 65% of Americans own their own home. But if you go back to the 1920s to the 1910s, fewer than half of Americans owned their own homes. It was in the 1920s and 30s that the federal government started to get involved in really pushing homeownership. And a lot of it was was about a stabilizing tenant population in the country. People living in the city were less stable. Um, They were less likely to live in one place for a long time. People are so committed to trying to find work and kind of fending for themselves that a lot of historians thought that the civic spirit didn't have a way to take root in these cities that were full of tenants and full of slums. And so there was an effort in the 1920s and in the 1930s to try to promote homeownership as a way to stabilize the population. And I think that's an important part of this that's that's often left out of the homeownership story in the U.S homeownership wasn't necessarily good for workers because okay, it committed them to the system. They'd be less likely to rebel against and sort of overthrow a system because they were now part of it. And so one idea was if you could promote homeownership, if you could get people to kind of buy into this system to buy their home, they would be less likely to be radical, right? They'd be less likely to be leftists. Um, so that was part of the rhetoric at the time.
0: That's such a fascinating part of the book where you're literally buying into the system.
1: Yeah. The National Association of Realtors and the National Association of Home Builders are two of the largest lobbies in Washington, D.C., right? And so when we think about the politics of homeownership, well, what are are they invested in, right? What are the builders invested in? What are the realtors invested in? What are Um, they
0: invested in? Can you talk a little bit more about
1: that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the most important thing is the mortgage interest deduction. So the mortgage interest deduction is a tax deduction that some homeowners claim. A homeowner can deduct the interest payments on their mortgage loan from their taxes. So it's a way to um, to reward homeowners. It's about four times as much money as the federal government spends on all low-income rental housing. So in other words, we, we give back to wealthy homeowners four times as much money as we spend on all low-income rental housing assistance.
0: In 2015, the federal government dedicated $134 billion to helping homeowners subsidize their homes. And to put this into perspective, these government subsidies were larger than the budgets of the education, justice and energy departments combined for that year. So what we pay to help homeowners own their home in the U.S. exceeds half of the entire GDP of countries like Chile, New Zealand and Portugal. 75%
1: of the the money that goes to households because of the deduction goes to families making $100,000 or more in the United States. Those are people that would be homeowners regardless of whether they got this deduction. And and that's the concern that people raise with the deduction is that you're not incentivizing people who can almost buy a home, right? You're, you're, You're just giving money to people who, regardless of the deduction, would have owned a home. Now, they might have owned a smaller home or they might have taken out a smaller loan, and that may or may not be good, but they would be homeowners anyway. So it's not helping people to become homeowners.
0: Right, it's money that the government gives to people who are already wealthy. That's right. Yet, when we think of government-subsidized housing, we usually think of tall public housing complexes. Not this. My desired architectural style would have to be French country. I really want
1: a craftsman-style home. French country doesn't lend itself to a big front porch swing.
0: It might be two-story, which you know I love. I really want a grand staircase. So when we think of recipients of federal aid, we don't really see middle class homeowners, professionals with salaries or retirees. But that's essentially what you're saying, right? That these middle class homeowners are benefiting from huge government subsidies.
1: Yeah, that's that's right. And I think that um, social scientists would call this the hidden welfare state. So, I get a tax deduction every year because I own a home. So, it's the difference between the federal government gives me a subsidy to go find housing. They give me $1,000 a month, let's say, if I have a housing voucher and I go find it, and that looks like a giveaway. And instead, what they've done for homeowners, they said, "Okay, the amount of money that you owe the government is $4,000 less than it otherwise would be." So, it's very much a part of money that's given back to to people, it's just less visible, right? And so, so in that way, tricky distinction between money that's given out and money that's, um, right, that you sort of don't have to pay in taxes because of the deduction.
0: You mentioned that the interests of the realtors and builders may not be the same interest as homeowners, yeah. and no industry is treated more favorably by the federal tax code than real estate, where developers yeah. can deduct most expenses and pay, on average, just one percent of income tax compared to eleven percent across. Other industries. So what role do they play in making sure that this politics of home ownership stays among the primary forces driving the real estate lobby and and realtors?
1: You know, when when you look at who's organizing in favor of the deductions for homeowners, what's what's interesting is you don't see homeowners organizing on their own behalf. So you don't see the way you might see elderly Americans or, or sort of other special groups organizing on their own behalf. It's realtors that are organizing um, in favor of these deductions, and so I, so I think that you know sort of goes to your to your point about this being. An industry-driven tax deduction that we wanna that we wanna keep, and you know it's also not the only one. So tax deduction for state and local property taxes, right? So if you pay um, local if you pay local taxes, you can deduct those from your from your federal tax liability. There's no capital gains tax on home sales, right, up to a certain point. So for a single filer, you can make two hundred fifty thousand dollars in profit and not have to pay any taxes on that profit. For a married couple, you can make five hundred thousand dollars in profit on your home sales and not have to pay any taxes, right? So so we also treat treat the home as a financial instrument very differently than we do other, other sorts of investments, right? The idea that you could make half a million dollars in profit when you sell your home and not have to pay taxes on that is right? a really remarkable way to, to think about housing.
0: So let's talk about lobbies for a second. We often hear about the gun and the pharmaceutical lobbies, but the real estate lobby has spent way more than either of those groups. According to the Center for Responsive Politics, The National Association of Realtors spent $65 million in lobbying efforts in 2016. It falls behind only the U.S. Chamber of Commerce in terms of dollars spent.
1: So there's been a lot of research on this and, and and across the board sort of economists and social scientists agree that the, the mortgage interest deduction is regressive which is to say that it favors high income households rather than low income households it doesn't actually help people on the margins right so if you're just about able to buy a home but you just need kind of a little bit of a push it's not a great deduction for you because because most middle class and lower middle class Americans don't itemize their taxes so they can't take the deduction and in fact what it actually does is it incentivizes people to buy Bigger homes because you can now spend more money on home ownership, right? A bigger a bigger percentage of your income. So so there's a lot of concern among economists, among social scientists, that it's actually not a very good deduction if the policy goal is to promote home ownership, right? To get more people to own their own homes. And yet, uh, you'll see the National Association of Realtors, the Nas- National Association of Homebuilders, right, really defending this deduction, right? And and there's been almost no movement. I mean, it's really remarkable for for a period of time when we're Talking about um, fiscal restraint, reigning in a budget. Um, the the mortgage interest deduction today is probably about uh, seventy billion dollars that the fe- federal government loses, but but it's a policy that. Everybody's sort of a little bit afraid to touch, right? Everybody sort of um, seems to like it, and a big part of that is that realtors and home builders have been really pushing to protect this. So, so there are, are some sort of interesting politics I think under underlying it. It's a it's it's genuinely believed to be uh, not a great policy, but but a lot of political support from those groups.
0: It's worth noting that there's little incentive to change the policy because the mortgage interest deduction overwhelmingly benefits upper middle class voters, AKA the majority of elected officials' voter base. But it's recognizing this gap in reality that allows us to understand why there's so much poverty in the US in 2017.
1: Homeownership has become the the primary way that we build wealth in the United States. And so even though homeowners are more involved in their communities, they're involved in really particular ways. Quite often, what they're involved in doing is making sure that nothing happens in their neighborhood that would hurt their property value. Because their, their property values, that's, that's how people are building wealth. And what does that mean? Well, it often means keeping certain types of people out of your neighborhood, right? Trying to keep low-income people out of your neighborhood, maybe trying to keep homeless shelters out of your neighborhood. Often that's very racialized in, in how that language is coded. It's trying to keep certain types of land uses that you think are going to drive your property values down, right? Trying to keep those out of your neighborhood. Americans have more of their wealth in their homes than in anything else, right? We've created this system where it's actually very hard to build wealth, and especially for middle-class people outside of housing. It makes, it makes perfect sense that people will do whatever they can to protect that housing wealth, right? And so efforts to keep uh, some people from living in a high opportunity neighborhood. Efforts to keep um, some people from moving into a neighborhood that has good schools, right, has ramifications, right, has ramifications for the reproduction of inequality, for creating neighborhoods that are segregated by home ownership status, that are segregated by income, that, that are segregated by race. So, so on one hand, right, we, we don't object to people wanting to protect their income pr- protect their assets right protect their property values but it doesn't come without implications for other people so that's my concern and especially my concern in in, in when we equate home ownership with citizenship
0: 73% of white people own a home compared to 47% of Latinos and 45% of blacks this difference in home ownership rates is the prime driver of our country's racial wealth gap If Black and Hispanic families owned homes at rates similar to whites, the racial wealth gap would be reduced by almost a third. And that's important because a huge gap in wealth means a volatile country. It also means that fewer and fewer people control the majority of the country's wealth and thus can determine its future.
1: Well, and that's where all the excited, happy talk about homeownership masks the fact that there's this new form of inequality that's being created or, or maybe just being deepened at this point, where if I can invest in a home and, you know, when the, when the value goes up, I can sell it, I can make that profit – Right? And then I use that to invest in a new home and all of a sudden the, the the gap between the the renters and homeowners becomes wider and wider and wider. And so we've been concerned about all sorts of inequality in this country, right? About wealth inequality is, is a big one. And a lot of wealth inequality is driven by homeownership, the ability to make money through housing, right? And then to reinvest that money in housing and to, to make more money off of that. And if you can't get into homeownership, you don't have the down payment, if you don't have the credit score, if you don't have the knowledge of how to buy a home, that that's where the inequality gap gets a lot wider.
0: Regardless of what your politics are, everyone seems to agree that owning a home is a great and a good, sound decision. And yeah. that ideology was so intense that it was actually used during the housing crisis to sell things to people that they couldn't afford. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: There are very few things in America that we agree upon, right? Very few public policy issues, very few social policy issues. But there's widespread agreement on the left, the right, old and young, black and white, right, that people really want to own their own homes. And and it struck me as um, uh, one of the reasons that I thought this research was important, right, is that there are kind of very few things in the U.S. that unite us in the way that home ownership does.
0: We want to find that perfect house. Buying my first house. That's the house that we're going to stay in. We'll have great resale value. And our kids will be raised in.
1: It's the American dream. What Ray's challenges about it is... During the housing crisis, the the thing that hurt a lot of people is they had subprime loans. So they had loans where they weren't making regular payments. And it's hard to build wealth that way they were they're often suckered into getting loans right that weren't the kinds of loans that would help them build wealth that's one problem a second is sociologists have shown over and over again that um, that the ability to build wealth right depends on what neighborhood you live in and african-american families are much more likely to end up neighbor in neighborhoods where property values don't go up in the same way right and so so it's much harder to build wealth in, in those neighborhoods so when I talk about the politics of exclusion what I'm interested in is is thinking about the way that um, homeowners work to exclude other people from their neighborhoods, or exclude other people from from sort of having a legitimate voice.
0: Do you watch HGTV at all?
1: I do every now and then.
0: What do you think of it? Is it harmful to re-promote this rhetoric?
1: I think that some of these shows surely kind of reify this idea of home ownership as the American dream. But I think that there are also a lot of reasons, even outside of the financial ones, that Americans want to own their own homes. Feelings of security, feelings of safety—it's a it's a physical space that I feel safe in or that I feel comfortable in—is a really big reason that people give when they're asked whether or not they want to own a home. So there are, there are personal reasons outside of the financial ones that people give when they, when they say they want to own a home. And then I think the other piece of that, one of the reasons is, um, is the social status associated with it, right? We think of homeowners as sort of having made it, um, being very successful, right? This, this image of what it means to have purchased a home. And, and what I find in my research on, on that question is that, there are some groups that really see that as a reason to buy a home. So if you ask African-Americans, Latinos, first-generation immigrants, right groups that have been historically excluded from the process of buying a home or have had a harder time buying a home or face discrimination in the housing or mortgage markets, they're, they're more than twice as likely to say that the social status of ownership really matters to them and i think that's something that we sort of shouldn't forget in this conversation is that it really does mean a lot to to people and particularly to a subset of people who have who have been historically excluded from this institution buying a home really really matters it's a big social marker still one of the 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 really interesting polls that i remember reading while i was doing this research was people were asked sort of what was the most important part of the American dream and it wasn't getting a college education and it wasn't doing better than your parents did which are two things that we put at the top of the American dream right mobility is about doing better than your parents did college education is the way to get there but buying a home is still this sort of centerpiece of 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 the American dream and so so I think that it really has endured um, and it's largely endured because it is about the finances about the investment value of home ownership but it means a lot of other things to people as well and I think that's part of why it's Endured for so long.
0: So it endured not only because it's no longer an opportunity to build wealth, but it endured because of the emotional aspect.
1: I think that's right, right? There's an emotional aspect to it that people get attached to it. There's a cultural aspect to it that this is what it means to be successful. This is what it means to be American. Um, and so it's endured for those reasons. And, and I think today it does endure for the financial reasons as well, right? It continues to be, again, for if you buy in the right neighborhood and with the right product and hold on to it for a long time, it continues to be a very good investment strategy, but I think it endures for more than just the financial reasons.
0: The American dream of home ownership is very much a political act, and it always has been, first as a way for people to vote and then as a way to keep workers from rebelling against their bosses. Today, the real estate lobby backed mortgage interest deduction creates a racialized wealth gap that keeps wealthy families wealthy. It's the main factor driving the income gap between white households and black and Hispanic ones. And this giant gap between who holds wealth in this country worsens the political and economic outcomes for the entire country. It makes us and the economy more volatile, but you wouldn't know it from watching HGTV and admittedly, it's not their job to explain it. I'll speak for myself here. Usually I'm watching HGTV to escape our country's volatility. Emily and I like being outdoors and we're we're competitive, too. We love playing yard games. So I definitely want a place where we can play those games. Last shot. Come on. I never ended up closing on the home I told you about earlier in the episode, but as I watched HGTV this week from my tiny rental apartment, I realized that a portion of the taxes taken from my biweekly paycheck go to subsidize the housing costs of the people I was watching on House Hunters. To be honest, I was pissed. And I also wanted in on this sweet, sweet tax break. Who doesn't want to own a home and build wealth? Especially for those who don't come from it. I'd love to hear your opinions on HGTV and home buying. Tweet me at Pirate or tag me in your posts on Instagram using at popculturepirate. And make sure you use the hashtag SOLH. That way nothing slips through the cracks. Also, feel free to tweet me while you're watching HGTV this week. We'll be back next week with another episode, but in the meantime, check out our video channel based on this podcast at facebook.com slash held, And please subscribe to Strong Opinions Loosely Held wherever you get your podcasts And please leave a comment while you're there. This episode was produced by Sarah Bernard and edited by Carrie Ann Thomas for Refinery29. Special thanks to Kat Maldina for her research help. We recorded with Paul Ruest and we'll see you back here next Monday. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer.